Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. We have a special guest today and that is... Holly Fry. Oh my God, we're borrowing another podcaster. Yay! I love to come and visit. Well, I love it too. And Holly Fry, for those of you who've been living under a podcast rock for a while, is co-host of Stuff You Missed in History Class, a wildly popular history podcast. <laughs> Those words sound odd and stressful to me, but... <laughs> well, I'm just speaking the truth. Well, you are wild and you are successful. Sure. This sounds like a weird 80s power film for women suddenly. You well, are wild. Well, no. Well, we are wearing shoulder pads. Yes. And power suits as we sit here. Because that's what one does wear when talking about Queen Victoria, naturally. That's right. And, and we are also wearing giant crotchless underpants to accompany this episode as well. Yeah. That's not your <laughs> usual jam or? Not, not on Wednesdays. No. Not usually. All right, then. Yeah, but no, that is a reference, actually, to Queen Victoria's underwear. I'm not just throwing out random panty references. Yeah, and if people listen to our History of Panties episode, they would know that. Panties, underpants. We did a history on undergarments way back when I first was on History, when Sarah was still here, and we talked at length about that. And if you want, I have a little soapbox about Queen Victoria's undergarments and some of the press coverage they got. Well, I definitely want to hear this. I, I absolutely think that this is relevant to today's conversation. I do want to throw out there that this is, ladies and gentlemen, Queen Week on Stuff Mom Never Told You. We're talking about Queen Victoria and also a uh, a female queen of Egypt, a female pharaoh. So Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. Who I don't think wore uh, bifurcated garments as her underoos. <laughs> as her underoos, yeah, if she even had underoos. That's right. I doubt she did. Well, Holly, should we kick off with your soapbox? Should we should we start off talking about underpants? Please. Is that a weird place to start? I am underwear start? lady. No, it comes up all the time in the history podcast because I like to talk about clothes and fashion. And I really do like to talk about foundation garments to a degree that uh, might be suspect to some. But <laughs> um So one of the things that happened a couple years ago, there were numerous little pockets of quote news, I'm doing the air quotes, about sort of the discovery of this pair of pantalettes that had been Queen Victoria's. And they talked about the amazing girth and how huge they were. And because it had like a 44 inch waist. If I'm, this is off the top of my head. Um, but here's the thing. That doesn't mean her waist was 44 inches. She was stout. I mean, I'm not saying she was willowy, but those undergarments, one, the whole like we fascination that people have with them not having a closed crotch. That is an issue of necessity to mm. go to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, and that is also why there is so much fabric at the top, because if it were fitted and they had to go to the bathroom, it would actually be more difficult to kind of maneuver things out of the way. But they had all of this extra fabric that they could kind of pull up around their hips so that when they sat there, there was much reduced risk of getting any of their under things dirty. Oh. So there was a lot of drawstring there gathering in an awful lot of fabric at that point. Yeah, but it's because of that news article that came out talking about her her underpants uh, that now anytime anyone says Queen Victoria, in my head I have this weird split screen mental image of Queen Victoria like in profile in some of those photographs where she was very sad and in mourning and her underpants. Well, She's the only person, if you say like, Kristen Conger or Holly, and I just picture your faces, not your underpants, because well, I've never seen them, I guess. We, but Queen Victoria. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now I do. But no, Queen Victoria, I just, I picture her face. Like, you know those cat, like, glamour shots where there's, there's several pictures in one picture of a man holding a cat? Yeah. Sort of how I imagine Queen Victoria in her underpants. <laughs> All right. But anyway, that's sort of the danger, right, of being a public figure is that history will kind of piece together a bizarre quilt of images (laughs) of what you are. Yeah. And that like long after your reign, some podcasters are going to be talking about your underpants or pantalettes, I should say. Which she would not want to have discussed. No, no, no. She she definitely definitely lived a, a stricter lifestyle where people did not talk about underpants. True. But she was also very forthright. Um, you know, when she died, and we'll maybe get to this later, we could go all over the map in chronology. Her youngest daughter, Beatrice, 
actually destroyed a lot of the Queen's journals because she thought she was just way too blunt and forthright and shared way too much information. It was way too direct because she wrote something like 2,500 words a day just as habit. Whoa. Um, just to keep her, you know, writing voice, to keep her mind stimulated, to be documenting. I mean, she understood that as a sovereign, you know, she needed to be documenting her days. But a lot of that is lost to us now. Oh, I hate that. Because Beatrice. And some of them... um if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on this because this is off the top of my head. I think there are some that still exist, but that Beatrice heavily edited. Like she kind of rewrote some stuff to make it a little more nicey-nice and not so abrupt in certain cases and so direct in, in thought. Beatrice. Yeah, Beatrice is not. Uh, many historians will badmouth Beatrice. Everybody's the hero of their own piece, so I'm sure Beatrice had her own reasons. Uh, there's you know, surely fascination there, but it does suck that we lost so much of that record. Yeah. So, Holly, one thing that I want to know from mm-hmm. you is why you are personally fascinated with Victoria, because that was the big reason why we wanted to talk to you today, because we said, hey, we, 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 you should come on and talk about Queens. And immediately you knew who you wanted to talk about because you love Queen Victoria. Well, now I know that you guys have not taken a good look at my desk because I have always had a picture of her on my desk. <laughs> No, I haven't. I'm wearing that. a picture of her right well, I, now. I do see that. She's, I love her. I have a bizarre attachment to her. Uh, and when I was younger, I think it first started when I, uh, you know, had sort of that small little gleaning of history that you get in regular history classes. And especially when you're a student like me, who is maybe not always paying close attention. But I just love the fact that there was this woman who was, you know, within these confines of a, a in some ways, fairly rigid society. But she still really had a strong sense of self and a strong will. And her birthday's like the day before mine. So when you're like 16, 17, that seems super cool. <laughs> and then um, I, I think our listeners on history know, so I don't think I'm going to surprise anybody. I'm not really a kid's person. Uh, and neither was she. <laughs> uh, even though she had nine of her own, like particularly babies really kind of oogged her out. So there's like a kinship for me there. Uh, and, you know, initially she really resisted marriage, which is a phase I certainly went through in my uh, younger years. And then suddenly she met Albert and wanted to get married, which is exactly what happened to me when I met my husband. Uh, so there are just some parallels that make me feel a kinship. But also just, I mean, what a wealth of history. It, she's like the longest running female ruler, I think, in history. She did some amazing things. She really established... So many of the really important parts of Great Britain's history in terms of like museums and public spaces. And a lot of that has to do with Albert, of course. But she's just fascinating, smart. Mm-hmm. Not, I think people think Victorian and they always think buttoned up. But uh, when you listen to like accounts of her grandchildren and stuff, she was hilarious and full of laughter. And she loved to paint and she was very into the arts and so uh, there's a complexity there that I really love. I love thinking of her as somebody's crazy grandmother you, because you don't. You don't <laughs> think of Queen Victoria as somebody's. You barely think of her as somebody's mother. Right. But you definitely don't think of her as somebody's grandmother. And it's just it's funny how if somebody is your own parent or I mean, she was also sort of a, a tyrannical mother in law. Uh, in one case in particular that I can think of, but it's harder, I think, to get along with a difficult parent than it is uh, somebody that you can just kind of dismiss and, and love as a crazy grandparent. Oh, yeah. Even if, you know, she is the queen. But also, I think, you know, she has this image of being a very cold mother. And I, she certainly cared for her children. Her own relationship with her mother was so complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly after her mother died. Uh, you know, Albert really tried a lot to kind of mend that fence between them and like figure out a way that she and her mother could have a relationship going forward, particularly once they had their first child. It became really, really important to him. And, you know, Victoria was open to that and they did sort of forge a relationship, but it really wasn't until after her mother died. And then she was reading like her mother's diaries and letters that she realized that her mother was in fact devoted to her and loved her, had been maybe misguided in how she had raised her. Mm-hmm. And that really made her hate Conroy more than ever. Oh, yeah. We haven't even talked about Conroy. OK, OK. So let's back up a little bit 
And let's talk about who she is, where she came from, how we even got her to be queen. Um, so a few details. She was born May 24th, 1819 at Kensington Palace. And she was named Princess Alexandrina Victoria. And Alexandrina is kind of a different name for someone born in London. Well, uh, her godfather was actually Emperor Alexander I of Russia. Uh, which is where that came from. It's the female derivative. Mm-hmm. So, and her mother, of course, was Victoire. Uh, so she was named Victoria after her mother. They had actually considered some other names, and her uncle, George IV, was like, Mm-mm, nope. <laughs> he put the Ixnay on some names. Uh, I'm trying to remember them. I want to say there was maybe a, was there a Carolina in the mix being considered? And I don't remember what else, but. But yeah, they just didn't want, they didn't want this person from a weird lineage to have special royal names. I'm not a hundred percent clear on what the decision was there. I haven't done deep enough historical dive on that one, but I know he was basically like, I'm going to have to approve this. (laughs) It has to go through me and you're not going to be named any of these other fancy names. Well, you mentioned her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the, the widowed Victoire, Duchess of Amorbach. Amorbach? I'm not sure the pronunciation, but I love that name. And she was married to Victoria's father, Edward, Duke of Kent, who actually died shortly after she was born. Yeah, she didn't really know her father all that well. Um, there's actually a whole fun side story here about whether or not he was really her father. Oh. Uh, it's one of those, like... Uh, juicy history things. It, it can also be completely dismissed, but mm-hmm. here's the scoop. So, uh, A.N. Wilson, who was a journalist and biographer that you've referenced, he put forth this theory uh, a while back that really Sir John Conroy was more likely the father of Victoria because mm. uh, her father had been really pretty elderly when she was born. The kind of suggestion being that maybe not so virile at that point and possibly not able to father a child. Uh, whereas Conroy was the same age as her mother. They had a very close relationship. It was rumored all over the place that they had a sexual relationship. Uh, whether or not that's true, we do not know for certain. Uh, there is other supporting evidence. So in addition to the Duke of Kent having been elderly and possibly not capable, uh, hemophilia suddenly appeared in the bloodline where it had not been before. So Victoria's children and their various issue have hemophilia in the bloodline. However, that's one of those things that her father would have had to have had it to pass it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Conroy did not. So we don't know if it was maybe something that had been in the bloodline and just hadn't presented. The other evidence that Wilson suggests is that uh, Porphyria had been in the bloodline which is what King George III was supposed to have had, and then it vanishes from the bloodline after this point. However, there is some more modern evidence that really the porphyria diagnosis is not correct. Oh. Uh, and that it's something else that was causing George's madness. Uh, so all of that can be contradicted. Uh, but it is an interesting side note. There's also uh, uh, some historical rumoring that Albert was not entirely legitimate and that really the the thing that people who really kind of push this theory point out that, you know, if they were both mixing in bloodline that was not there before, they probably strengthened all the houses of yeah. Europe. Yeah. And for one thing, Victoria and Albert had nine children and they all lived to adulthood, which at the time was not super common. Uh, so for them to have had such a healthy family, if they had continued in their sort of, you know, royal blood bloodlines without any mix in would have been a lot more unlikely, but it seemed to work just fine. Uh, so that's just a food for thought. I love it. Well, and <laughs> I love how your eyes just get bigger and bigger with everything I say. I love it. And regardless, though, of whether Conroy was or wasn't her biological dad, he definitely played a significant role with Victoire, her mom, in Victoria's upbringing. And this whole Kensington system thing... Yeah. What, what's up with that? It makes my stomach hurt. What happened? Uh, the Kensington system was pitched to Victoria as this whole set of rules that was going to keep her safe uh, and that it was for her, her best interests. But really, it was kind of limiting her 
in terms of social development and just in terms of like her being able to be self-sufficient. It was almost like they wanted to infantilize her forever so that uh, the theory being that Conroy and Victoria's mother kind of wanted to have power over her always. Like they recognize this as their end to power. Right. Cause Conroy was her personal secretary. Or- Correct. Okay. Uh, and basically she couldn't do anything for herself. She could never be alone. She wasn't allowed to walk up or down stairs without holding someone's hand. And this is not something that only happened when she was like five. We're talking when she was 17. She would have to wait for like her governess or her mother or somebody to come and take her hand so she could go up and down the stairs. And it made her crazy. Um, you know, she was constantly champing at the bit because she felt so limited. She had to sleep in a room with her mother every night. Oh, weird. She just had no sense of independence. And it was something that really, as she got older, just really grated on her. And the older she got and the more sort of self-aware she got and started questioning these things, it just made her resent her mother so much. And of course, Conroy. But that's really where like the huge rift in their relationship kind of forms is this. I mean, with any kid, whether you're royal or not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a normal part of childhood development that you get some independence and you start making decisions for yourself and you start testing the waters of the world. And she had no opportunity to do that. So but all of the impulse to do so. So she just felt constantly frustrated. Well, so the reason behind this effort to kind of keep her childlike and infantilize her and keep her powerless, that had to do a lot with. Was it Victor thinking that she could be the queen regent, wield power? That was uh, one of the things. There is some, there are some question marks about how much of this was actually her mother's idea versus how much of it was Conroy kind of planting the idea. Conroy really, certainly for me, I'll say, um, you know, you're supposed to stay a little more objective, but I have difficulty doing that in Victoria's case. He kind of really does emerge, though, as the villain of the piece. I mean... The the evidence that continues to stack up against him when you kind of analyze all of the various moves that were made around Victoria's life and kind of the strong hand he wanted to take in her upbringing and how he did. I mean, her mother apparently had these impulses to be much more warm with her and caring with her and give her what she wanted. But Conroy was insistent that that would be damaging to the plan. And whether he pitched that as no, no, we're doing what's best for your daughter or, hey, you and me, we're going to get some power out of this jam is a little bit cloudy. Um, But he does seem to have been the one manipulating everything. Mm -hmm. Makes me think he's a weasel. (laughs) Well, then on June 20th, 1837, she becomes queen at just 18 years old. And it seems like any pressure that might have been relieved from her maybe stepping away from stepping into her own perhaps in that regard was just replaced with the pressure to get a husband already it was like let's protect you and keep you as a baby and don't walk downstairs (laughs) by yourself switching immediately to get a husband get married well yeah and there was also the whole element of uh you know her uncle king william kind of recognized that things were really dicey with Conroy and Victor and like he did not like what was going on. He really wanted to have a close relationship with his niece. She was, you know, the heir. Uh, and they really kept them apart. They kept her from him. And on what was his last birthday party at a banquet, he made this really impassioned, angry, no holds barred speech, basically talking about what a horrible person her mother was. She was 17 at the time. She was, I think, nine months from her 18th birthday. He was, you know, getting on in years. And he basically was like, I just got to hang on till this kid hits 18 because I am not letting you sit as regent. Like he was really adamant that like he was going to just live until Victoria's birthday. And in fact, he died like three weeks after she turned 18. So it did kind of seem like he was just clinging to life until he knew that the the throne was the succession he wanted and not Conroy and Victor's seat. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, Victoria had any grief stricken moments of reconciliation with her mother after William's passing because she immediately jettisons Victor and John over to the other side of Buckingham Palace and is like, get away from me. And also, could I have one hour by myself a day and my own bedroom, please? Hello, I'm a queen now. Yeah. Uh, but because she was not married, this is part of the pressure to get married. And it, it was some of what she wanted. Um, and... Also, some of what, you know, the public expected, 
But in some ways, she wanted freedom. But sort of the catch-22 is that uh, she couldn't live, even though she was queen, apart from her mother. And so um, Melbourne, who was the prime minister at the time, was like, well, then you have to get married. Like, if you want, if you really want to, like, boot her, you're going to have to get married. Uh, and in fact, she, um, she would turn down any request by her mother to see her. Uh, but again, if she wanted a permanent exit from the, the household, she was going to have to get married. Yeah. And she met a couple of, of eligible dudes, right? And, and wasn't so taken until she, she met Albert. Is that right? <laughs> until she re-met her cousin. Uh, everybody yeah. really wanted her and Albert as a couple. Oh. That was kind of the arranged marriage that the family was putting together. Uh, and it just turned out that they got along fabulously and really adored each other. There was also in that whole get married quick thing, uh, an element. She technically, ruled over Hanover, but she couldn't when she took the throne of uh, England and Great Britain and their many properties. Hanover still only recognized male sovereignty. So she had to marry and bear a child before she could take that portion of her title fully. So that was another reason that people were like, if you actually want all these things, you're going to have to make the babies with a husband. Which she was just like, really? (laughs) But she, so they re-met. They, they were first cousins. Not like, this is not a distant cousin situation. They, they were first cousins. They re-meet in 1839. She has to propose to him. Yeah. Because you can't, she's the queen. You can't go around proposing to the queen. Right. Uh, uh they, she, he was technically beneath her station. Right. Oh. <laughs> so he just couldn't. There's that Kinda whole like weird a, class order. Yeah, it's like a Disney movie though. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I mean, in, until, until she like hates being a mother or whatever. But, uh, they get married in 1840, and I loved Wilson's characterization of their relationship. She says, This pair of extremely strong characters was in for an extraordinary journey together when they married. Both wanted power. Neither wanted to surrender their independence. More than in most marriages, there was a thunderous clash of wills. There was also, however, a deep bond from the very first. Yeah. I'm always a little careful with Wilson. Yeah. I am. Uh but I, one of the things that I think is important to think about in looking at their particular relationship, and I, I don't even like to characterize it as like Albert had this big drive for power. I don't think that was it. He just wanted to sort of have. I'm reluctant to call it power, but he wanted the freedom to be able to actually do things that would enact positive change. Like he was a pretty. He was keen on helping people. Uh, you know, he took an interest in the working class. He was really concerned about the living conditions of the poor in a way that, you know, many royals were certainly not. Uh, and so he wanted that leverage. But also you have to consider that they were very much in love and were husband and wife, but she was also the queen. And so... Apparently, there were arguments over, like, are you talking to me as a queen or are you talking to me as my wife? Like, you, you, we have to have, like, an actual partnership. Um, which, you know, the growing pains of any marriage at 18, I mean. Well, that's like, you know, with my fiance and me, it's like, are you talking to me as the podcaster <laughs> or me as Kristen, babe? <laughs> Uh, and it's, the answer is always the podcast. Always. <laughs> he always. just loves being that close to power. That's right. <laughs> um, but what I think is really lovely is uh, her diary entry uh, describing their first night as husband and wife. I mean, she really is just head over heels in love with him. She does not get especially graphic, but she just talks about like how incredible and blissful it is to her to be embraced by someone who loves her and to be told wonderful things by this caring man that she thinks is so beautiful. So, you know, I mean, there really there is a lot of passion in that relationship, which I think because of the additional stresses put upon it by where they are in life, you know, both being youthful and being the leaders of, you know, a huge number of people. Those are some stressors most of us never have to encounter. So it does make sense to me that there would be some arguments, especially since they were really, in many ways, you know, intellectually equals. Mm-hmm. So it's a little tricky, tricky waters to navigate. 
Well, and it seems like though once she starts getting pregnant with her first of nine children, she's essentially pregnant for the next what, like sixteen years or something. That f- allows Albert to. I mean, he kind of has to step in and take over a little bit of her public life when she isn't. She isn't even allowed to be seen in public when she's so far along. Yeah, and you know she, her letters to her oldest daughter Vicky are a scream. I mean, they're such a read. Um, and since we don't have a lot of her journals, in some ways, that's really what we have of her thoughts on marriage and children. And it is very blunt. You can only imagine what was in the private journals. But she really is like, don't get pregnant right away. Don't do it. Like, I wish I had had just a year with your father alone before we started having mm-hmm. children. And she talks about how she did not enjoy the early motherhood stuff. She doesn't particularly care for infants. She finds breastfeeding absolutely horrifying. She There's a sort of a famous, um, it's a little bit of a misquote uh, where people like to say that she called her daughters that were breastfeeding cows, but she really kind of likened the whole thing to like being the property of men and being livestock. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, you're a cow. It was like, we're all just turned into cows. It's not even fair. We have no choice in the matter. Um, as much as she was very in love with Albert, and they really did seem to have just a, a really deep attachment, and for the most part, despite some conflicts, a, a pretty happy marriage, she's not a big proponent of marriage in those letters, where she's like, you know, people don't have to get married. I think women get married and they don't need to. There was one instance where a um, like a woman of fairly high social standing who had been, I think in her mid-30s, had passed away and she had been unmarried. And for some people, it was a big scandal. Like, who will mourn her? She's yeah. like, I don't know that her life wasn't perfectly happy. I don't, I don't think she doesn't need to do the mommy and wife thing. That's not for everybody. It's not always fun. She really pitches this sort of portrait of like, Unfortunately, women are trapped. Like, we have to fulfill this role. We have to keep humans going by making babies. Men don't always understand the best you can hope for is a husband that kind of gets it and, you know, treats you with some respect. But, like, we just got to, like, kind of buckle down and deal with it. She's she's not like, it's beautiful and wonderful. We get the great honor of furthering the nation. She's kind of like, well, you got to do what you got to do. That's so interesting. I've never heard that about Victoria. Well, I wonder, too, and this might be possible, impossible to even speculate, but what her reign would have been like if she could have had the choice to have remained single and child-free, if that would have had any influence on... I don't know what she did. I mean, she ended up, I mean, she was an ambitious ruler nonetheless, but. Yeah. I mean, the first thought that comes to my head, which is not a serious one, is that somebody would have found her mother like shivved with a letter opener before long because she couldn't get her out of the house. But <laughs> that's how that would have played out. And, and, and Conroy. She would have become a murderer. Like she could boot Conroy right away when she got married. Right. She's like, you're out. You are not allowed near me. This is the end of you. But by convention, she had to maintain living in the same house with her mother. Mommy dearest. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, the the sort of lovely, I don't know that you would call it an irony, is that even though she wasn't into particularly having babies, um, it really was the birth of her children or the births of her children that kind of helped fix a little bit of her relationship with her mom. That was really when her eldest daughter was born was really when Albert was like, now would be a great time to try to like, Maybe let your mom back into the family and let her know her grandchild and yeah, not just put up a stone wall on this one. Like, wouldn't that be cool? Like, let's all try to make a family here. That's well, that's nice, especially after Victoria was raised in such a sort of um, isolated. Yeah. Childhood. Yeah. Boy, her kids had no isolation. Yeah. Had a million of each other. Uh yeah. Oh, I want to jump back to the Kensington thing. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things she really hated about this whole thing, and I apologize that it slipped my mind earlier, is that they also would kind of trot her around England. Like her mother and Conroy would take her on these tours of England so crowds could come and see her. And she just hated it. She didn't like it. I mean, again, they have given her like none of the real groundwork to like handle people and be around people with comfort. And yet they're like, here she is, future ruler, la, la, la. 
she hated it. William hated it because he felt like it was setting up this weird situation where they were somehow rivals for the throne. Uh, it just was awkward and gross. There's a lot of awkward and gross things that went on in her childhood. She's such a lonely kid. It breaks my heart. Oh, does Victoria. Yeah. I mean, it's like when I think about like how she sometimes struggled with like dealing with people and people not just doing what she wanted or being challenged. It's like, well, because she never got social skill development time. Like she was always having to like. She was doing the things when she was already queen that most of us figure out in, like, elementary school when we're fighting over Play-Doh. Right. Like, she was having to develop that social and emotional language as a ruler and how it would affect her rule and how she was perceived by the public at an age when she should have not had to worry about those things. And where were the people to walk her up the stairs? Right? (laughs) Well, and her, uh, her first diary entry... After she takes the throne, uh, I think the word alone appears like five times, but in like a really blissful way. Like, uh-huh. I, I'm getting to sit alone. This is the first time I've ever truly been alone. She's just so happy to have time to herself. It seems like given those circumstances growing up, too, she lucked out so much with Albert being... The, the gem, that at least it seems like he was. It seems like Albert usually gets pretty glowing reviews when it comes to being a decent husband. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he was a good match for her and that he kind of had a, a gentler spirit. Like he was no less smart. I mean, he was incredibly smart. Um, and he certainly understood sort of the responsibility of their position. He was headstrong and that when he thought an idea was correct and like was going to do some good, he would really hang on to it. But he just had an ability to kind of smooth things out and kind of counter her episodes of, uh, you know, a little bit more rageful behavior at times and kind of just be like, OK, well, we're going to work through this. It's going to be OK. That does lead me to a question, though, mm-hmm. about in terms of her little ragey behavior and, and missteps. Now, you mentioned we were talking about getting together for this episode, that there was one particular misstep in particular that you wanted to talk about with Lady Hastings. Was that pre or post marriage to Albert? Uh, I it was pre it was pre. Uh, so and we should talk a little bit more, too, about how Albert was not super loved when he first came on the scene. Ooh. Like her her country did not embrace him as wholly as she did initially. Uh, but Lady Flora Hastings was had been uh, Victoire's lady in waiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so already Mark against her. And uh, she was a young woman. She started to develop a swelling of the abdomen. And this caused a lot of tongues wagging that she had been impregnated out of wedlock by Sir John Conroy. Uh, always the villain. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like he's like a Disney villain. He just pops up in every opportunity of badness. Um, and Victoria really kind of uh, found these rumors juicy and delightful and believed them. And so she kind of helped spread them. Uh, she sort of wanted uh, Lady Flora to undergo a physical examination that was resisted for a while, but eventually Flora did acquiesce, and it turned out that the doctor found that she was a virgin. So already uh, Victoria looked a little bit like a jerk. And then when Lady Flora Hastings died several months later, it turned out that she had a huge liver tumor. So then Victoria looked like a huge, mean jerk. And like basically a schoolyard bully that had just, you know, created misery for this poor girl. Um, that really, really did not help her standing amongst her people because mm-hmm. she did look like a jerk. I mean, she spread rumors and was mean to this poor woman who was dying of a tumor. So yeah. how did she recover from it? Slowly but surely. Um, and Albert was a big part of that. You know, he even though he wasn't. Initially, super embraced. He was a foreigner. He was, you know, there's just some, I don't know about this. Uh, because he really worked so diligently to try to improve conditions for all of the classes of England um, and Great Britain, you know, he started a lot of different sort of good works that kind of just slowly built up. There were also several assassination attempts, which, you know, kind of there is a natural public reaction even now, like, 
if a, a leader that is not particularly popular has an attempt on their life, people tend to rally to them and be like, no, no, you cannot do that to our leader, even if they don't particularly like them. One case, um, someone had shot at her while she was out in the carriage and missed, and they couldn't identify who it had been in the crowd. So she was like, I'm going back out the next day. Let's see if he'll do it again. And so that kind of made people go, man, she's cool. <laughs> this woman is brazen. I like her. <laughs> so, I mean, little, there were multiple little steps like that that kind of helped win the favor of, of her people back over. Uh, and then when Albert put together the, um, the great exposition in 1851, that was another huge thing where, you know, they basically, um, first of all, they built Paxton's great crystal palace for it. We actually did a whole episode on that in Stuff You Missed in History Class, which is just architecturally phenomenal. And it kind of brought this great level of culture. It was open to everyone. It was really cool. And then they used the proceeds from it to start the Victoria and Albert Museum. Uh, and Albert's whole thing was like, everyone should have access to culture. Everyone should hear beautiful music. Everyone should see art. Everyone should be exposed to all of these things. I don't care if you're working class. I don't. We just we all as a country need to have access to beautiful arts and improved lives. And so, of course, that's going to that's a pretty good jam to mm-hmm. pitch. But unfortunately, Albert isn't going to be around for all of Victoria's reign or even close to all of her reign. And we're going to talk about Albert's passing and how that impacts the rest of Queen Victoria's rule when we come right back with Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History class after a quick break. And now back to the show. Okay, so before the break, we were talking with Holly all about Victoria's early years, growing up, being isolated from other children, having to sort of grow up without knowing how to interact well with other people. But then she meets, well, re-meets her cousin Albert. They fall in love. They've got this great, almost dual monarchy, productive partnership going on. But then tragedy strikes in 1861 when Albert dies. And some say it was stomach cancer. Some say typhoid. Some say it was even Crohn's disease. But Holly, I'm interested in in hearing a little bit about leading up to what was going on before Albert passed. So Victoria always blamed their son, Bertie, for the whole thing. Uh, He had been away training. He was going to be, you know, the next in line to take the throne. Uh, He there were rumors that there had been a woman in his tent and that he was, you know, kind of behaving in ways that were not becoming to the future leader. And Albert was very upset. He wrote this long, angry letter to his son about what are you doing? This is absolutely foolish. Uh, you know, do you have no respect for your position in life? And then he ran off to check on him, even though he was very ill already, uh, and came back and he basically did not last much longer after that. So in Victoria's head, there was a clear cause and effect and it was Bertie. However, uh, part of the problem is that Albert had been sick for a long time before that. And his doctors had not been entirely clear with Victoria about how grave the situation was and truly how sick he had been. Um I don't want to blame my Vicky because I love her. But not long before this, her mother had died. And it really, you know, that's, as I said, she became very upset the more she kind of read her mother's letters after her mother's death. And she went into a pretty dark morning. And Albert, already sick, was like, you mourn your mom. You work through this. I'm going to take care of all of your duties. I'll do your job as long as you need. You you do you. Grieve. And so, you know, it's easy for her to blame Bertie, but he was stressing himself out already, just mm-hmm. kind of at that point running the country without her. He was also, I mean, he never turned down any of his duties. He never said like, hey, I'm not really up to this right now. He'd be like, all right, sure, I'll go oversee that thing. Absolutely, I will take that meeting. Like he just, he kind of worked himself to death. Uh, uh, and we let- don't, we don't really know what his cause of death was. There have been yeah. a few. Um, stomach cancer has been mentioned. Uh, typhoid fever was the the big popular opinion for a while. Lately, there have been some theories that it was Crohn's disease, in fact. Uh, it's very heartbreaking. She was with him when he died. She was holding his hand mm. uh, because she had heard his ragged breathing there in the blue room of the the um, the household. And she went to be with him and she held him and she spoke with him in German. And he apparently, according to her account, had three long, slow breaths and then he was just gone. And she kissed his head, and that was the end of it. Um, so heartbreaking. Yeah. 
I mean. And then she wore black for like ever. Which I love. I love that about her. Um, she's like the original goth, but um, <laughs> except not really because the gothic period was already been and <laughs> Come gone. Come and gone. It's a whole separate kind of goth though, really. But it was that, it was that very special Victorian era morning and she was the queen uh, of the morning at the time. And we talked about this in our episode, uh, our interview with Kate Sweeney about just the Victorian era obsession with death. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love a good Victorian morning gown? Seriously. I think you're being facetious and I'm being dead serious. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not being facetious and we know, we know the Victorians really, they were into that. Well, and it was also the heyday of spiritualism. So she also got into seances to try to contact Albert. I mean, it seems like Victoria went, not, I don't want to say she went off the deep end because spiritualism was so common at the time, but it seems like she lost maybe a little bit of touch with reality for a minute. Well, she always seemed to have some pretty interesting kind of post-trauma reactions to things. Um, there have been some suggestions in recent times that uh, historians have made based largely on the writings of Albert, actually, that she suffered from postpartum depression with each of her children because Albert would talk about these fits she would go into and she would just get so upset over the littlest thing. And, you know, normally after the birth of each of their children, whether or not that was postpartum depression or she was just angry, she had another baby on her hands. (laughs) We don't know. But she did tend to have pretty intense emotional reactions to things that happened to her. Um, And so, you know, of course, losing the love of her life, like this person, uh, she said something after he had died, that that was the last person who could ever call her Victoria was now gone. Like she didn't really have anybody that was, you know, her equal and her friend anymore. She was just the queen and she didn't have that same level of camaraderie. Well, people only knew her as her royal self at that point. So it kind of makes sense that she would maybe turn to some seemingly wacky ways to try to work through her morning and potential. I mean, you know, frankly, I think all of that is hooey, but if my husband were to suddenly pass, I would be like, bring on the witch doctors, get me any sort of voodoo practitioner. Like, can I please talk to Brian again? Like, I'll do it. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. So I can yeah. understand how that would happen. Um, you know, there's... Well, this might be a, a ridiculous question, considering the era and also her station. But it sounds like she just didn't have any friends. I mean, that sentiment that there was no one else who could ever really call her Victoria, because after that, all of the focus seems to be turned to, like in retrospect of us looking at her today, it shifts away from Albert and then it's just focused on her relationship with her kids. It doesn't seem like she had. I mean, she had John Brown, um, who kind of turns into a little bit of a Conroy, it seems like, in terms of his control over her life. But it doesn't seem like there's any... I don't know any like safe person for Victoria. Well, exactly. And I I mean, I think, again, we're kind of painting a a psychological picture that I I am probably not qualified in terms of degrees and study to do. But when you think about a person who had this weird upbringing, not really all the social graces figured out, suddenly has a ton of power, has this marriage, this one person that gets her, nobody else. And then when she's grieving, she doesn't have anybody to comfort her. Mm -hmm. It's just like. At best, you get the cold. There, there, dear. Yeah. But that really was when Albert started to get the glowing reputation. Because, again, similar to how, you know, once things happened to her, like um, assassination attempts, she would gain some sympathy. Like once Albert was gone and she was just I mean, she commissioned like I think it was a five volume biography of his entire life. And, you know, she really at that point lauded him as this amazing loss for the country and really for all of Europe. And. So other people were like, yeah, he was great. Uh, and he was. I mean, he did some incredible things. So that's really where his his PR gets really, really good after his death. Like people start to realize, you know, what a, a great man he was in many ways and and certainly in sympathy with her. But she didn't have that sort of personal sympathy that someone would normally have when you're going through grief. I can't imagine what that would be like, like to just grieve on your own with everyone staring at you. Yeah, well, the the whole getting of a better <laughs> reputation after 
something horrible happens. I mean, it's kind of, we kind of see the same thing with Birdie that, you know, yes. we've, we've got this sort of absent invisible queen. They were even publishing political cartoons showing an empty throne, you know, uh, so people are wondering, is she shirking her duties? But then we have this playboy prince that everybody's like, ugh, he's got prostitutes in his tent. What's going on? <laughs> but then Birdie ends up getting, he actually gets typhoid definitively, right? And yeah. so all of a sudden the country's like, oh no, the prince is sick. We feel so bad for him. Yeah. We wonder why we're so obsessed with like reality TV, but it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, we've always we've always been like this. But yeah, so he he basically garners the nation's sympathy and suddenly they love him. And um I mean, did did what happens then? Like what happens with Victoria and Bertie after that? Like is she still sort of suspicious of him and not wanting to give him any power? I would be reticent to claim that their relationship was ever fully mended. Yeah. But it, you know how as you age, some stuff starts being less important. Mm-hmm. I think that was more the case. It's just time kind of turned down the volume on some of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love, I love watching, or watching, but like reading about how these relationships did evolve, considering that when Birdie was a kid, she, <laughs> Queen Victoria wrote, Handsome, I cannot think him with that painfully small and narrow head, those immense features and total want of chin. Yeah, she read a lot of cruel things. Poor Leopold, man. (laughs) Leopold really took one for the team. I mean, he just, oh, she said terrible things about that child, about just what an ugly thing he was. And Yeah, this was the, the son with hemophilia. Yeah, she was not super kind to that poor child. Well, she also, just the way that she was raised isolated, so was Leopold. Yeah. Yeah, he really kind of didn't. Beatrice, her youngest, I mean, you, I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of the reason Beatrice was like, we're getting rid of all her stuff, was kind of that, you know, by the time you're the last couple of kids in a big long line like that, parents have been through a lot. Maybe not getting your fair slice of the pie at that point. Yeah. But Leopold's, I mean, Leopold's story is so sad that he's he's made to live the life of an invalid, that he was bullied by the servant who was supposed to look after him. All of, you know, uh, he she wasn't going to let him leave home, but he finally went to study at Oxford. Well, and was to uh, Queen Victoria, the original helicopter parent with spies being sent out to watch over not only her children, but also, uh, for instance, like Bertie's wife. And no. things like that. No, I mean, that happened throughout history in royal families all the time. So, yes, but it wasn't. She's not the original. No, I mean, there was precedent. I mean, you can even look at like Marie Antoinette and her mother and her mother constantly going, you had sex yet? Have you had the sex yet? Are you going to make a Have you had this? I'm sending your brother to explain sex. Like, (laughs) so, so, I mean, there were certainly plenty of. And that's just one example. There are plenty throughout all of the houses of Europe where, you know, because there is that added stress of like, oh, by the way, the nation is in your hands at some point in the future or already. We're, you know, there there are expectations of children that are not normal, certainly to us. Right. And wanting to keep tabs on one of her daughter-in-law's menstrual cycles and would plan balls so that they would not fall within the cycle. I think that's just being sensible. Yeah, that's just polite. Right. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you love it if someone did that for you? Let me make sure you don't have any important meetings this week. And also we're going to there's. I would like to throw a party. Can I get your information on when it's going to work best for you? Wink, wink. Like, come on. Yeah. When, <laughs> Caroline, when are you most likely to yell at strangers? <laughs> we're we're going to just not plan the party for that week. But what? how was she, though, as a ruler, especially during this time? Because she steps away completely from the public eye. She's obviously active as a mother in some sense. But for a long time, it doesn't seem like she's doing a whole lot, but I know that that's a very simplistic. Well, for like five years, she did no public appearances. So to some degree, you're right. Uh, And a lot of people like to point out she just wasn't around. And she did kind of retreat to uh, Balmoral to spend a great deal of time. However, she was maintaining all of her correspondences. Um, You know, she was working daily in that regard. Uh, She just wasn't, you know, in London in the thick of it. She just didn't want to be there. Yeah, and and this is when we really see the the strong Republican movement developing when she's sort of invisible in a way. 
uh, from the throne. But yeah, like you said, she was still keeping up with things. Um, in 1864, from behind the scenes, she did press her ministers not to intervene in the Prussia-Austria-Denmark War. And so it's not like she ever totally disappeared, but it's it's starting after that in the late 1860s and really in the 70s that we finally see her emerge. Yeah, it seems like she makes a, a pretty impressive comeback. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing to keep in mind is that throughout her time on the throne, you know, already the queen did not have that much direct political power. She could assert her influence over things, but it wasn't like she could go, and now the country will do this. She would have to, like, convince politicians of what, you know, she thought was best. And slowly over her entire reign, the power of the throne was being chipped away. You know, there was, like, one bill after another that was introduced that kind of, you know, again, would reduce incrementally, like, what the royal family was capable of doing and what their power was. So uh, a lot of people like to say, and then she vanished and the Republicans rose in the, in the vacuum. And it's like, this is not entirely accurate. There's a number of moving parts there and it's really more of a slow kind of wave and an ebb rather than just a direct um, cause and effect. So Holly, are you referring to more of a constitutional monarchy developing basically where she's kind of supposed to remain above party politics? Well, Theoretically, it already was. Um, Albert also really pushed her to like follow really what she thought was best and not get involved in the party messes. That had there had been some missteps early in her reign over that. Like it, at one point, she was supposed to, when some parties changed out, uh, get rid of all of her her current ladies and replace them with those that were in the same political favor as as the, the then ruling party. And she was like, nope. And that really caused a lot of problems. Uh, or as Albert was like, you have to stop doing things uh, based on party lines. You have to just try to, you know, be a, a good leader and think about each topic that comes up and each problem that comes up, like as a human that is smart and can, you know, objectively look at a problem and sort it out. Um. So she tried to get more and more away from that. But the, her power, I mean, the power of the monarchy was being chipped away regardless. Mm-hmm. So it kind of got to be more constitutional monarchy, but it already was. So what inspired her then to c- come back more or less in, especially as we mentioned in like the late 1860s and 1870s? Well, she uh, ruled, as we know, for a very long time. I think there were Ten different prime ministers while she was on the throne and the one that kind of coaxed her back into like more publicly serving her role was Benjamin Disraeli, uh, who just sort of had this ability to kind of influence her in a, a seemingly positive way and just convince her like, no, you really you need to be visible. People need to see you as part of your job. Come on. Like almost luring the scared animal out with some trick. Come on, you you should do this. But of course, she wasn't really a scared animal. And I think that kind of helped her get over that last hurdle and back into the swing of things. And she was like, hey, you know what I want to I want to be I want to be an empress. Can I do that? (laughs) And I don't want my daughter Vicky to be an empress. I want to be an empress. (laughs) So let's let's talk about India. We've got to make this happen. Yeah, we've got a Veruca salt on our hands right here. Yeah, empiricism is a tricky problem. You know, it's it's hard to keep loving her in some ways for me at that point. I think that's why I tend to love her early year stories a mm-hmm. lot more. And then I'm like, la, 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 not so much with the, oh, she, no, power grab, no. Um, <laughs> but, of course, that did happen. Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that she had this concern over... Uh, Vicky, who then uh, married into the German monarchy, somehow having more than her, since eventually her grandchild through Vicky, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, would be a primary figure in World War One. It just all kind of, when you look at the, the big quilt, the big quilt of European rulers, it kind of strikes me as funny that she was so worried about that power on yeah. that end when it's like, you shouldn't worry about what's going to happen in that branch too much. <laughs> like, some things are going to happen and you can't stop it. So 
Yeah, it's like the worst family reu- reunion ever. <laughs> like all the aunts and uncles are just causing problems. But yeah, so so there yeah, there was stuff going on in India. There was an uprising and she was like, "Enough of this. I'm going to make uh you part of my empire." Yeah, people. Yeah, let's do this thing, she said, and they did. And they did. Well, here's a question, though. So over the course of her almost 64-year reign, I mean, she becomes inextricably linked with Britain's age of industrial expansion, economic progress, imperialism, obviously. But I'm also really curious to know how much of the culture that we think of when we hear Victorian era is reflective of her or if it was just, I mean, obviously it didn't all just like come shooting out of her like one giant rainbow. Like her 10th child. (laughs) (laughs) I've dropped a culture egg, you guys. Let's open it and see what happens. Um, There certainly was a great deal that we can attribute back to her. There are some really interesting like trend things that are all her that we a lot of people don't realize. Like uh you guys probably know, I'm sure you've talked about it. The white wedding dress thing is all her. Uh it's very very funny because prior to that time, white would be completely not appropriate for a wedding. It was associated more with mourning. Mm. But like within 2 weeks of her marriage to Albert cuz not only did she wear white her attendants all wore white. It was really a very plain gown compared to a lot. And there was initially like a lot of, I don't think you understand how to wedding. <laughs> um, but like two weeks later, fashion books were like, everyone knows that white's the best. <laughs> it was just suddenly like, obviously, this was always the best color for a bride. Uh, but the other thing that a lot of people don't realize, Christmas trees. That's largely Victoria's doing. Uh, her mother, you know, it's more of a German tradition to have a small tree at at uh, Christmas time. And her mother had had some. I think she would bring yew trees into the house. But at this point, to bring a tree in the house in Great Britain was like, what? Um, but then once she married Albert, she really wanted, particularly their first Christmas, for it to be very welcoming and to feel like home for him. So she did the big tree, and then when they had the kids, they kept the tree thing going, and now everybody has a Christmas tree, but that was not de rigueur prior to her. Uh, so that's an interesting sort of cultural legacy that she's left us. But what about the lifestyle? You know, Kristen and I talk about Victorians a lot on the podcast, as I'm sure you and Tracy do too, about everything was so buttoned up, like you mentioned earlier. Like, where does that come from? Uh, you know, I think there's just that sense of propriety, and I think if you want to trace it to her... Again, I think it, there you always hear like, oh, it was very buttoned up, but then not really. Yeah. Like the Victorians Flat were porn. secret freaks. Like, yeah. and I think you can, it, it's almost a really sort of lovely accidental mirror of Victoria herself where she did appear so prim. And so, I mean, every image we have of her, particularly later in life, is that stern, we are not amused face. <laughs> but then you hear her grandchildren say she was a hoot and she just laughed and she had a beautiful smile and she was hilarious and, uh, so there, and I mean, even within her marriage, she was very into Albert sexually. I mean, they were very much in love. She had a portrait commission, which has since has come to light in fairly recent years that was not especially scandalous, but at the time was downright, you know, where her shoulders are uncovered. And because apparently he loved to watch her ladies undress her at the end of the day because he loved when her shoulders would be revealed. He thought they were just beautiful. Mm. And so she had this portrait done and it's lovely. She's kind of in three quarter profile and. Her shoulder is naked and her hair is draped over it. And so, I mean, I think that the echo is there culturally of like, no, everything's very rigid and strict and except not so much all the time, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting there's a dichotomy there that I think is is very much reflective of who Victoria was. Yeah. I mean, I think that is interesting to bring up that whole dichotomy, the the buttoned upness, but then in private, the very the very open loving but also sort of kind of moody personality that existed and and I think that 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 trend we can see that going throughout her whole life the fact that she you know wasn't the biggest fan of being pregnant or having kids or raising babies but she did love her children and care about every iota of their being yeah which uh, that's another thing she's often I mentioned earlier criticized for but it's like she didn't really have a good model like yeah. she didn't how do you piece together how to be a mom when you never when you had two people telling you what to do every minute of your life and right. 
you know, it, I mean, it, she just grew up a contrarian. I mean, it it was entirely possible that that with Conroy's and her mother's plot, kind of, and their scheming, so to speak, that she could have very well grown up to be just like this this yes woman, you know, doing whatever they wanted. But instead, they bred a contrarian <laughs> who became the queen for almost sixty four years. So yeah, uh, that's part of why I love her. Yeah, I like her. Her duality of person. But she she pretty much stayed once she reemerged into the public eye in the in the 1870s. She pretty much stayed there until her death in 1901 after a series of small strokes. But she was don't worry, people. She was buried next to Albert. Yes. And, you know, it was what she had inscribed on the mausoleum for both of them. It's so sweet. Um, Farewell, best beloved. Here at last I shall rest with thee. With thee in Christ I shall rise again. It's very sweet. Still very in sweet. love. Yeah. I mean, they had a good one. That was a good lucky match. <laughs> so, Holly, to sum it all up, even though it's kind of impossible when it comes to Queen Victoria, what is your, what do you think is her number one contribution to history? If you could only pick one. Uh, the cultural institutions she and Albert set up. I mean, those, you know, Victoria and Albert Museum is still just amazing. It has more than 2,000 years worth of art and relics. And, you know, there's constant research going on because of the seeds that they planted in the mid-1800s that were are still bearing fruit um, and, you know, that people are still learning from. So for me, that would be what it is. But also, I really like a good bustle gown. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Well, Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about Queen Victoria. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun. And for listeners of ours who don't already listen to Stuff You Missed in History Class, where can they go to find out more about you and the podcast? Uh, They can go to MissedInHistory.com. We have all of our episodes and our show notes go up there, all of the archives. So from all of the hosts previous, Tracy and I have been there about two and some change years. Um, But there were certainly many before that, so... You'll discover all manner of crazy things, everything you ever wanted to know about Egyptian embalming and various (laughs) medical diseases. (laughs) All diseases are medical, Holly. Uh, Various (laughs) diseases and how they were treated. There's a lot of astronomy and science history. Mm. And lots of history of other queens and empresses as well. Yes. We, We love all the royalty, even the crazy ones, especially the crazy ones. So head on over to Mist in History. Dot com. And hey, if you have thoughts to share with us about Queen Victoria or your favorite queen, you can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast, email us at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com, or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Sarah. She says, I just wanted to say thank you for all the work you ladies do in the podcast. I really enjoyed the thoughtful and lovely discussions you guys have. You've brought up a lot of topics that I've never really given much thought to. Slut-shaming, victim-blaming, and rape culture especially. I've become much more aware of my own habits and language and how they contribute to the culture of negativity in general. I catch myself thinking about how someone has gained weight or wearing clothing I wouldn't deem appropriate or maybe just looks a certain way. I'm making a sincere effort to change how I look at people and at the very least not to vocalize negativity I may be thinking about something as trivial as someone's dress. When I catch those thoughts coming on, I make an effort to turn it into something positive. A girl wearing an outfit that I and others would probably think is too tight for her figure turns into, I'm glad she has that confidence. You go, girl. It takes a lot of practice, but I feel like I'm contributing in some small way. I don't have children yet, but I'm hoping that will change this year. And I've put a lot of thought into how my children will be raised, about the kind of society they'll be raised in, and about how I'll keep them safe and confident and able to rise above the unreasonable expectations of society. Society. So thanks again for the enlightening and fun podcast and keep up the good work. And thank you, Sarah, for writing in. Well, I've got a letter here from Maddie and she writes, longtime listener, first time writer. I love the podcast so much and I'm really excited to have a reason to write in, especially about something like this. I live in Ontario, a province in Canada, she notes, (laughs) and our current premier, the U.S. equivalent would be a governor, is a woman named Kathleen Wynne. She's pretty cool for a few reasons. She's the first female premier of Ontario and the first openly gay premier in Canada. She's also made it very clear she's a proud feminist. 
She's shown this in a number of her policies, the latest of which is an extensive plan to combat sexual assault and rape culture, which has the title, It's Never Okay. The plan includes things like improved sex ed to teach kids about healthy relationships from a young age, more pressure on universities and workplaces to improve and continuously update harassment policies, increased support for existing treatment centers, and training for police, mental health workers, and crown prosecutors. There's even funding for artists to create work about gender inequality and rape culture. The government has also produced an ad which highlights the importance of speaking up and stepping in when you see assault happening. I've included a link to an article that contains the ad so you can watch it and read more if you want to. Maybe even post the video on the Facebook or Tumblr page. Again, love the podcast, the YouTube channel, and especially you two. I'm so excited to be able to share this kind of awesomeness with you. So thanks, Maddie, and we will indeed share that video on our Tumblr stuff, momnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you have emails to send our way, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one, you know where to go. It's stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 